All right, good morning, ladies. Good morning. Wow, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Beautiful. Supposed to be a nice day today. 70? Something like that? You better take a picture or something. You probably won't see that again until spring. 70 degrees. Take your Bibles this morning. Invite you to go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. Not long ago, maybe a month ago, I had an opportunity to speak in BCM Chapel. I just want to bring some thoughts that I had for them there. And I thought that was an appropriate thing. Matthew 27. I want to start out by reading a passage of Scripture there. Do you know what Matthew 27 is about? Yeah, you probably look down, see some notes there in your Bible and can tell this really is the end of the time here for Jesus. I want to begin in verse 15 and read some things that happened here. We're just going to kind of cut in. It's a lengthy story. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before and was praying there and then he was arrested there and we kind of remember the the events that surround that. He was taken then before the Jewish leadership and spent the night with them in a holding cell in Caiaphas' house. And then uh, now it's tomorrow, the sun is up, and the Jews have brought him to Pilate. Why did they do that? Does anybody know why the Jews who wanted to kill Jesus and have wanted to kill him for a long time have planned and plotted for his death, why do they now deliver him to the Romans? Yes. Yes. Okay, the Romans could kill him, and the Jews? And the Jews? Could not. Why? What law? No? Good try. That's a good try. They'd have done it anyway. (laughs) They were already that night doing things that were contrary to the law, you know, keeping somebody without a a formal accusation, any kind of proof. Anybody know? It, uh, I mean, they're really, they're willing to forego (laughs) any of their own laws to kill him. But they couldn't forego Roman law. It was Roman law that did not allow the Jews to execute any longer. There was only one one reason, that one accusation, one charge for which they could execute somebody. And that was to desecrate the temple. And that's why at the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul there was in great danger of being killed on the Temple Mount because that's what he was being accused of, bringing Gentiles into the temple. That's the only thing that the Romans had left them as a a, a reason to execute. Any other matters had to be given over to the Romans for for the Romans to adjudicate and bring to trial and make a decision on. So Pilate had the sole authority here to bring the death penalty to Jesus. And the Romans are, the Jews rather, are pressing him greatly 
in this passage of Scripture. They do not like the Romans. They don't like Pilate. But they need Pilate now to follow through on what they want to happen. And they're going to press him until it happens. Verse 15, Matthew 27. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. This was apparently a custom. Nobody knows who started it. Nobody knows really much about it other than what's recorded here is it was customary now for the Romans to do something that was seen as, as favorable to the Jews, to give them a prisoner, anybody that they wanted, they could have free now. And that's what we're reading about. And they had then a notable prisoner, notable, well-known, called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas, or Jesus, which is called Christ, the Messiah? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They, say, they all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When, Jesus, when, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Who crucified Jesus? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very broad question. Who crucified Jesus? Okay, so if we said, if we said why the Romans did it, would that be correct? Yeah, that'd be correct. It says it right there. Pilate delivered him to be crucified. If we said the Jews did it, would we be correct? Yeah, truly. Now, now, let me just tell you a little side thought here. I was on a plane traveling from Istanbul, Turkey to Tel Aviv, Israel a few years ago on one of the Israel tours and seated next to me to my right was a Jewish man who was uh, about 40 years old. He was a former paratrooper in the Israeli army. Of course, all the Israelis have to serve in the army, even the females, for a period of time. Not quite as long as the males do, but uh, anyway. So I tried to strike up a conversation with him, hoping to turn it to the gospel. So we, we got to talking, and I would tell him how much I loved Israel, been there a few times, and, and uh, was going back, and really enjoyed being in Israel and supported Israel. And he's very surprised by that. Very surprised. Now that's, 
you know, that surprised me, but I'm trying to keep in context here, okay? He doesn't think that really any nation of the world sides with Israel. And if you look at the United Nations, that'd be true. From the United Nations perspective, it would appear that Israel stands alone and nobody really is there to help them. It was just an odd thing for him that an American was so, not like, I love visiting Israel. No, I love Israel. And uh, so we were having this conversation. He was really taken back by that. And we, we were talking, and I would try to turn the conversation to the gospel. He didn't want to go there, uh, which that's typical Jew. And uh, so we were, I was asking him questions. He was, uh, had resided in New York for a little while, was moving back to Israel with his wife. And as we talked, uh, and, and I tried to turn him to the gospel, I asked him what his name was. He said it's Joab. And his last name was Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Because I actually said, now, you know, Isaiah said, this will be Emmanuel. He said, that's my last name. <laughs> God with us. Anyway. So we were having a really good talk, but every time I turned to the gospel, he, he, he lost interest in it. So I would just start talking about Israel again, and he'd get all excited again. We did this several times. It's a short flight, so I knew I didn't have much time. Finally, he turns to me, puzzled, like we had become friends at that point, friendly. And so he says, I've got a question for you. He said, why do people say that the Jews killed Jesus? That's what he asked me. If you're witnessing to a Jew sometime, you might encounter that question. It has been a question that for the last several hundred years, right through medieval times and into the Reformation, that Christians in Europe, mostly Catholic, have, have um, persecuted the Jews for that reason. You killed Jesus. You guys did that and used that as a reason to persecute the Jews in Europe. Europe, mostly our ancestors, okay? Well, that's still stinging. Frankly, it would be then a reason to, to walk right into the Holocaust and to justify, you know, from the cr Christian realm that you guys are, are of no value because you turned on Jesus and you killed him. Martin Luther actually presented that as a, as a thought in his writings. If you didn't know that, that's true. Martin Luther. Well, so now he's, he's asking me that question. Why do, uh, why do people say, why do your people say that the Jews killed Israel, uh, killed Jesus? All right. I said, without really a thought, I said, because you did. Which he I mean, he was noticeably stunned by that answer. Like, how can you be a friend of Israel and say that? Well, I noticed his, he was taken back by that. And so the Lord put on my heart and I immediately said, I said, Joab, you got to understand something. I killed Jesus. It was my sin that put Jesus on the cross and turned that toward the gospel, which he was then trying to, whoa, how is this thing going <laughs> down? But, um, but would that not be a true statement as well? Yes. I put Jesus on the cross. 
my sin put him there. Okay, so all of those statements are true, and what we're reading here is, a, is an actual historical account here. In verse uh, 25, the Jews literally say, His blood be on us and on our children. I have walked through many a Holocaust museum in, uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Washington, D.C., in Chicago. Maybe you've been able to visit some of those Holocaust museums. They're very sobering. Frankly, there's times when you'll walk through a Holocaust museum and you won't hear anything but sobbing at the things that you'll see there. And, and in no small way is it due to that statement right there. I think God just said, okay, if that's what you want, His blood be on us and on our children. Now we know spiritually His blood is on us too. I understand that. But they made that statement, and more than once I've walked through a museum and had those words ringing in my ears. That's what you asked for, that his blood, the judgment, the condemnation that you're meeting out on Jesus, the perfect lamb, to be on our children. And as you look at the pictures in a Holocaust museum, are they not the children of these? Absolutely. Now, lest we just, you know, get frustrated like Martin Luther did at this point, let's remember that uh, the decisions that we make spiritually are on our children as well. You know, good or bad, there they are, okay. Let's make some faith decisions, which we're going to spend the time now in this text. We're going to turn this to ourselves. Where should we be in this? Because we weren't standing there, these Jews were. All right, so let's keep reading. And we read there 26 that, that he now is delivering Jesus to be crucified. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. This place, by way, this common hall, it is believed to have been now uncovered in archaeology. And you can stand on the pavement stones where it is very likely that Jesus was, uh, where he stood at this point in verse 27. You can stand there. You can see the games still etched into the stones of the floor that the Roman soldiers would have played in their free time. Verse 28, And they stripped him and put, him, put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his raiment, his own raiment, on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come into a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. They crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the prophets. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. All right, let's take a look at this. 
there are uh, obviously a number of people involved in one way or another in the crucifixion of Jesus and in the events that are taking place this day. We're going to hone in on three of those people, three of those, and we're going to draw a conclusion. Now, before we do that, well, let me just tell you who they are. Barabbas, we're going to talk about Barabbas. We're going to talk about Pilate's wife. It's interesting, the role that she plays. It's just a, a, really a verse, um, Pilate's wife. We don't know her name, but uh, there, there we have Pilate's wife. It's interesting that history doubts, history, you know, secular historians, archaeologists doubt everything that the Bible says until it's proven, and then they just pass it off, okay, whatever, and go on to doubt something else, okay? This is true. And uh, there's a number of things like that. They've doubted uh, Nineveh's existence, Nineveh. They've doubted Capernaum's existence, while neither of them had been found until they were found. Now they've been found. You can go to Nineveh, walk all around the place. You can go to Capernaum. I've been there. I haven't been to Nineveh. I've been to, been to uh, Capernaum and walked through it several times. And so you can't doubt anymore that, that there's a Capernaum. And it's in the Bible. But these, these scoffers, well, they just, whatever, okay, fine. It's not like they get born again at that point, okay? Because we, we believe by faith and not by sight. So discovering something doesn't help them at all. But uh, it is interesting that they doubted that there was even somebody named Pilate until a stone was found in Israel with his name etched in it. And I've not seen... Well, that stone is in a museum, and I don't know, I've probably been in that museum, but the stone that I've seen is a replica. They've made a, an exact replica of the stone and placed it there in Caesarea, the place where it was discovered, and you can go and see that. And then they couldn't deny anymore that this, you know, they can scoff a long time saying, wow, you know, the, the Bible puts such a emphasis on Pilate, and we've never even found anything with Pilate's name on it until they found it. So there really was a pilot. The pilot had a wife, and there she is, and we're going to talk a little bit about her. And then we're going to talk about, finally, uh, Simon of Cyrene. These three notable ones, individuals. Now, there's crowds and multitudes, hundreds, maybe thousands of people. But isn't it interesting that God, in this passage, picks out three that would otherwise, we would just pass over in obscurity, Barabbas. What do we know about Barabbas? Well, not very much. But wow, he's front and center on this, in this text. And Pilate's wife, God says, let me tell you something about Pilate's wife this day. He didn't have to tell us that. That she had a dream or something and wow, she's been afflicted throughout the day because of this, whatever it was. It just really is bothering her. Bothering her so much that she, she sends a message to Pilate uh, during the day, even though it's a key day for him and interrupts his day with it and uh, really, really presses on him, you know, something regarding that dream. And then Simon of Cyrene, we know his name. What do we know about him? All right, so we'll come to these three here in a moment. I want to lay a groundwork, though, here. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the military. A little bit about the military. Do you know how many wars and battles there have been since the beginning? Wars and battles. You know, there's like uh, almost never a time in human history where there's not at least one war going on somewhere. 
around the world. We might not even know about it. People are dying. People are, you know, needing to impress their will upon some other person, some other group, and subjugate them. And they're going on all the time. And uh, one of the, uh, the most dangerous situations to find yourself in, in a conflict or a war, is called encirclement encirclements. The one thing that you hope to go out there and when you're, you know, fighting for the cause and you're fighting for your country, uh, you, you definitely don't want this to happen to you and your fellow soldiers. Encirclement. We otherwise call it being surrounded. Okay? You might notice that the enemy's line, uh, if you can see it all, uh, is coming around you and you realize at that point you probably need to pull back because you don't want to get encircled. And yet many, many times throughout human history, that has been the case. Encirclement. We can read stories of anywhere from platoons, small groups of men, 10 or 20, being encircled by the enemy. Everywhere they look, they're, they're surrounded. All the way up, it's said to be the largest encirclement that ever happened was a group of men of 600,000 strong was surrounded. Do you know how many it would take to encircle 600,000? 600,000 were encircled by 1.1 million. Oh, okay, that'd be a problem. You understand then that if you are encircled, you're, you're really encircled by more. The enemy is greater, it's stronger, it's more numerous than your group, your company. Is that, that'd be the case, right? If you are in a fortification somehow, well, then a siege is going to start, right? Maybe they can't immediately break through and get you, but they can certainly cut you off from supply, and that's happened many times. And this is the most dangerous thing. One of the most famous that we have in American history of this sort is called the Alamo. You've heard of this, haven't you? The Alamo. What state? 1836, 189 men, we think, as close as we can come to an accurate count, 189 men were encircled in a Catholic mission, kind of a compound. It really wasn't meant to be a fort, but they kind of made it into a fort real quick. When anywhere from, we don't know for sure, 3,000 to 6,000 Mexican soldiers came under Santa Ana. And because those men refused to give up that ground and, and leave, even as they were encouraged, you guys got to get out of there. And they had the opportunity to leave. They decided, no, we're, we'll stay and fight. And, uh, and so they did. And there's a book that I read when I was in middle school, one of the first thicker books that I read called 13 Days to Glory. And that's how long it took, 13 days. They held out for 13 days. And at the end of that, nobody, even though they had sent letters by messenger, we need help, You've got to, somebody's got to come. And, and there were a few that attempted and tried and didn't make it for one reason or another. And Sam Houston with the, bigger, the biggest Texan army uh, decided that's not what I want to do. I, I don't think that's a good fight. Really encouraged them to get out, but didn't work out. Nobody came, in essence. Nobody came. And at the end of 13 days, the Alamo fell, and as far as we know, 189 men died. I don't think their bodies have even been discovered. 
So that's a, that's a bad encirclement. Now another one occurred uh, more than 100 years later in December of 1944. 1944 in Germany, you've heard of the Battle of the Bulge. The Germans were attempting to break through the American lines following D-Day. As we closed in, the Russians from the east and the Americans and the French and the British on the west were pushing the Germans back into Germany from France and Belgium. And all of a sudden, we didn't know it was coming. They had hidden it well. The Germans, in a last effort, pushed hard and created this bulge. They were trying to break through Belgium to Antwerp and get to the coast of the uh, English Channel. And there was a group of Americans that decided it's not going to happen on our watch. It was the 101st Airborne. I think you've heard of them as well, maybe at times. And they held up in a city called Bastogne. There were 11,000 Americans and 55,000 Germans surrounded them in the city of Bastogne. And uh, it's kind of a, a famous, you may have heard a little bit about it, but uh, the German general, once he realized that he had the Americans surrounded, sent them a message. This is what he said. There's only one possibility to save the encircled United States troops from total annihilation. That is the honorable surrender of the encircled town. In order to think it over, a term of two hours will be granted beginning with the presentation of this note. If this proposal should be rejected, one German artillery corps and six heavy anti-aircraft battalions are ready to annihilate the U.S. troops in and near Bastogne. The order for firing will be given immediately after this two-hour term. All the serious civilian losses caused by this artillery fire would not correspond well with the well-known American humanity. Signed the German commander, General von Lutzwitz. Famously, General Anthony McAuliffe, the commanding general of the 101st Airborne, sent back a message of one word. One word. Nuts. That's what he said. Nuts. Now, can you imagine the German general saying, what do nuts have to do with this at a time like this? Like, he, he had no idea. He had, he had no idea. He had to ask the American couriers, the American officers that brought it to him, what does that mean? And when they explained it to him, he was not impressed. And the shelling began, and the battle was on. Five to one, the Americans were outnumbered. The 101st Airborne were outnumbered. And uh, at that moment, General Patton, who was 150 miles away, which doesn't seem like that great a distance today, but in yeah, 1940, that was a long way away. He was given the order to break through, to get up there 150 miles. It would take days for his, his armored units, his tanks, to get up there and, and attempt to break through the German lines and the German tanks that were there. And uh, so a few days 
of, of just racing up there. Uh, they finally decided, okay, this final push, these last five miles, we're going to attempt to break through and get a road into Bastogne to save these besieged soldiers there. And the first tank, the first American tank to make it to Bastogne was nicknamed the King Cobra. That tank today is in a museum in Washington, D.C. They identified it years after the war. Frankly, it was 2008 before they really were able to track down and prove that this was the first tank to break through the German line successfully and open that road into Bastogne so that supplies and food and ammunition could be brought to those men. It's important that an encircled army be relieved by some friendly force. If not, the best you can hope for is total surrender, lest you be annihilated. Being encircled is the worst situation to be in on the battlefield, whether you be with few or with many. Do you know that uh, when we were born, we were essentially in that circumstance, encircled? by an enemy. Do you understand that? What would that enemy be? How would you describe that enemy? Okay, the devil who's against us and wanting to destroy us. And what else? Sin. Yeah, which those two kind of go together, sort of. But uh, yeah, sin encircles us. And it's necessary, is it not, for somebody to break through to us to get to us, to deliver us. What hope do we have of being able to, uh, to, to free ourselves in that circumstance? Do, are we capable? It is impossible for us to overcome the sin problem, to go toe-to-toe with Satan himself. We can't do that. Do you know that this text is about that very thing? Now, we have in our, in our United States Armed Forces um, awards, medals. We have a first place medal, second, third place. A silver star, a distinguished cross, and the highest medal that is offered in our military, in all branches of our military, is what? Some, some know. Go ahead. The Congre- it's called the Congressional Medal of Honor. For each of the branches, they look slightly different, but each of them is light blue in color and, and similar. But uh, that is awarded by the President of the United States to somebody who has just gone way over, way above, way above. 3,530 of those have been awarded since they were created during the Civil War. Most of those since World War II have been awarded posthumously. Do you know what that means? Which means it's given to a family member because that person is deceased, likely deceased in the very action that brought on that honor of that award. You know, in the Roman army, they also had awards. 
We don't think about this, but they did. We, we didn't like come up with the idea. They had awards. And the Romans really borrowed them from the Greeks. This really does go back. If you really want to provide incentives for your soldiers to fight and really exceed and excel in um, bravery, then you need to provide for them some incentive to do so. And um, the Romans had, uh, had some awards. The second highest award for in the Roman army was called the Civic Award. The Civic Award was that which if you, as a Roman soldier, you saw a fellow Roman soldier or even a citizen being overcome by an enemy and you went yourself and delivered that person from that enemy and that person that you delivered gave testimony, not somebody else, it had to be the person that you delivered, said, yes, I was about to die and they came and saved my life, then the civic award, the second highest award in the Roman Empire, would be awarded then to that. And it was a high award, very high award. And do you know what it was? It was a wreath worn about the head. The Romans borrowed the idea from the Greeks who used them to award athletes, right? Well, the Romans didn't care about athletics as much as soldiering. So they would make a wreath of oak leaves and that would be worn by that person and indicate that they had received the civic award. But the highest award is the one I want to talk about here for just a moment. The highest award was called the crown of grass. The crown of grass. Can you imagine it? Like, what? Wow. You say, what in the world? I can make one of those. What? The crown of grass. It is, the, it is the same as the Congressional Medal of Honor. It was awarded to a commanding officer who had not only delivered an individual, but delivered an entire army that was encircled, besieged, whether in a fortification or out in the open, they were surrounded by the enemy. And the, the Roman general, who with his legion could pierce the enemy lines and break through and deliver them, would then be awarded if, and let me read to you from a Roman historian who wrote about this. But as for the crown of grass, this was being written at the time of Christ. It was never conferred except at a crisis of extreme de desperation. Never voted except by the acclamation of the whole army and never to anyone but to who had been its preserver. Other crowns were awarded by generals to the soldiers. This alone by the soldiers to the general. The crown is also known as the obsidianal crown or the siege crown from the circumstance of a beleaguered army being delivered and so preserved from fearful disaster. The entire army that had been delivered voted. And if it was unanimous, yes, that general, he's the one. He broke through and we're alive today because of him. It had to be unanimous. 
hundreds or thousands would have to vote. And if it was voted on successfully, then from the ground on which this battle happened, they would go to the grass and they would pluck it there, signifying that this ground is important. And from that grass then, they would form a crown and they would place that on the head of that Roman general, like the Congressional Medal of Honor. Here, Jesus is crowned. Did you notice that? What was his crown called? A crown of thorns. Now that's interesting. Why thorns? Well, you know, I was just thought that. Well, they did that because they wanted to hurt him. Okay, well, that's probably true. And what were they thinking? Probably that. They wanted to make fun of him being the king. It's just very fascinating to me that while the Romans had this highest crown, highest honor called the crown of grass, taken from the very ground, ground that had been, where the soldiers had been delivered, that Jesus himself was crowned with a crown of thorns. And thorns and thistles would be that which would be born from the ground on which you and I were delivered. Isn't that interesting? I don't think the Roman soldiers were thinking it through. But I think we should. Jesus is that one who broke through the enemy to get to you and me. In the moment of salvation, is that true? Yes, in that moment, you cast your vote. Yes, he's the one that broke through and delivered me. I'm, I'm going to add my vote. Maybe before that, we were resistant to do that. No, I think, I, I think I'll be all right. I think my church attendance, my baptism, my whatever. But in a moment, we said, you know what? Like those Roman soldiers, I now will cast my vote for him and openly admit that he delivered me. He broke through to me. And let me say, ladies, it's not just in the moment of salvation. We need that deliverance daily. When we recognize that the cares of the world and, and our own flesh seem now again to encircle us, right? Oh, no, financial problems or whatever they might be. You know what? Jesus is still here to break through. Yes? Cast your vote again. Admit it again. You don't need to get saved again. You don't need to get delivered again. But you can vote again. No, no, no. He broke through for me. I'll receive again his deliverance. Now, just real quick, these three. Barabbas. Do you know that Barabbas in the text says nothing? The Bible calls him a murderer calls him uh, rebellious. Somehow he was rebellious against the Romans. He doesn't ever say a word. Barabbas, what do you want? It's not up to him. He's a picture here of just simply receiving the deliverance. Was Barabbas delivered? Was he delivered that day? He was already condemned to death. Already. And Jesus showed up. 
and took his place. A beautiful picture that, ladies, it doesn't require anything on our part. It didn't require anything on Barabbas' part. Well, we think you're a kind of a nice guy. We've noticed a few changes in you since we arrested you three days ago. They haven't seen anything in him that's worth anything. He's a bum. He deserves it. He knows it. But Jesus showed up. Did Jesus literally break through to Barabbas? Well, yeah, physically, he, he delivered him from the cross. And you know what? I want to believe, though I, I don't have a verse on it, I want to believe that Barabbas actually got born again. I, I just want to believe that. We're going to see him again someday. I'm sure as he walked out of there, a free man, he's still like, what just happened? And who's that guy? I, I wonder if he watched. Why is, who is he and what is he, why is he up there and I'm down here? And I want to believe that Barabbas is going to say, I don't know. All I'm saying is, he didn't do anything. He just received. That's all. That's all you and I have to do. Number two, we have Pilate's wife. She does a little bit more than that. She actually communicates about Jesus. She calls him a just man. He's not done anything wrong to deserve what's going on here. I'm convinced of that now, and I'm willing to speak about it. You see, she's got access to Pilate that nobody else had. And she's willing to use her role, not sit quietly by and do the dishes. She's going after it. She put everything she had verbally toward Jesus. That's the second step we have to take. Are you just a quiet Christian, appreciating what Jesus has done for you? Or are you at least like Pilate's wife? Hey, wait a minute. He's not done anything wrong. I have. Barabbas did. Jesus is innocent. Are we really ready to talk about it as much as at least Pilate's wife was? Verbally. Thirdly and finally, Simon. A very odd thing. Here he is. We know about him. I mean, in a sense, like we all know that he carried the cross. Nice guy. Thank you. Appreciate that. You think Jesus, you know, that God literally recorded that just so we could go, oh, wow, good thing he was there right then. No, there's more there, isn't there? Do you know that in the book of Mark, uh, in Mark's account of this very thing, it says here of him, uh, this verse, And they compel one Simon of Cyrene who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Why did God tell us the name of Simon's two boys? Like, why do we need to know that? What do you think? Why would God tell us? Okay. If, listen, if everybody ever reading that would say, well, I don't know who Alexander and Rufus is. It doesn't make any sense to me. It must have made sense to somebody or God wouldn't have recorded it. In other words, many years ago, maybe almost back to the time of Jesus, as people read that, they went, Simon of Cyrene, no, it doesn't ring a bell. Oh, wait a minute. Alexander and Rufus? Oh, I think I know who that is. That's why God would have recorded it. Because it made sense to somebody who this guy is with these two boys. 
See, I could remember on the farm with, with my grandpa, and somebody would say as they introduced me, uh, well, they didn't know me from Adam, and they said, yeah, that's Paul's boy. Oh, oh, you're Paul's boy. Yeah, rang a bell. Now they could put two and two together. Do you know that it's interesting that if you read through the New Testament, you will find two boys, two men, one named Alexander and one named Rufus. In different places, it's just interesting. You say, do you know for sure that they're Simon of Cyrene's sons? No, I can't say with certainty. I just think it's interesting. That God's the one who told us what the boys' names were, and then later on the Apostle Paul tells us, well, Paul one and Luke the other one, where these guys are and what they were doing, they were in missions work. Simon of Cyrene, maybe his sons, absolutely sure. And here he is. We don't have a record that he's jeering against Jesus. And maybe for that reason the Romans picked him. You seem to be for this guy. You're not yelling like everybody else. Why don't you come over here and help him? So what did he do? Barabbas did nothing. He just received the deliverance. Pilate's wife was willing to talk about it. Simon was really ready to get involved. Maybe he didn't come here that day intending to. But right now, maybe he's being a little bit compelled to. But you know what he does? Here's what he does. Can, can we say it this way? He made the cause of Christ move forward. Is that true? Did Simon of Cyrene do that? What was the cause of Christ that day? To go to the cross. Simon of Cyrene made that cause move forward. Are we ready to do that? Action. What step of obedience do we need to take so that the cause of Christ moves forward? No, we're not going to be called to literally, you know, by jeering Romans, take up a, a crossbeam of a cross. But it is going to be something that God is going to want us to do in our home, with our children, with our husband, with the church, with friends. There's a step of obedience to take. There was for Simon that day. Jesus broke through for us so that we could be like these who received that deliverance. As we conclude, and I give you a little bit of direction for your table time, there's two things that I'd like you to address in the time that you have. Maybe you can talk around your table about uh, something in your life that you know that Jesus has broken through and delivered you from. Now, I think we could all talk about salvation. Okay, that's good. That's almost a given for us. So maybe think of something else. I used to be really besieged by anger or worry. And here's how Jesus has really broken through for me in those areas and, and is delivering me. Maybe we put it that way. If you're willing to just testify to that uh, with ladies around your table, I'm sure it'll be an encouragement. Identify some way, some area where Jesus is still breaking through. And you know what? I got to receive that. Number two, what area still needs that kind of deliverance? Maybe you could say that um, I've identified another area of, of some sort. You know, being a better mom, a better wife, something there that, 
and, and make it as specific as possible, and maybe you'd be willing to share that with the ladies. Pray for me. I know that Jesus came to deliver me not just from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin, that it still holds sway in my life. Okay? Good. Thank you. Good listeners. Once again, have fun. <laughs>